Here's a good question. Uh, warmest greetings, Pastor Brian. Warmest greetings to you as well. I would like to seek your counsel on this question. Can a born-again believer ever lose his or her salvation through apostasy? In Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul assures nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though in 1 Timothy 4, Paul yet cautions about apostasy in latter times, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Does this mean that while our Lord Jesus Christ is forever true and faithful to his bride, the true believers can depart from the faith like an unfaithful bride to our Lord, walking away from him and the marriage? Thank you for your ministry and our Lord Jesus Christ, keeping you, your family, and church in prayers with love from Singapore. That's a long way away, John. Thank you for watching, listening, and and uh, and, and for reaching out. And, um, and uh, boy, it means the world that you're praying for us. Thank you very, very much for that. Um, Okay, well, this this is a great question on a number of levels. We'll see if we can unpack this a little bit. Um, first off, why don't you turn to Romans 8, uh, and we'll look at verses 30 and 39. Grab your Bible. Romans 8, 30 and 39, uh, wonderfully beloved passage, one that many of us have clung to over the years and have found great, tremendous comfort in. Uh, it's a great comfort for those who wrestle with the security of their salvation. Listen to what Paul says in, in verses 38 and 39 of Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is a wonderfully um, comforting passage when it comes to the idea of the, the assurance of our uh, and, and security of our salvation. Now, that passage is built upon something that comes previously in chapter 8 that gives heft to the idea that we are, you know, once we're in Christ, we are in Christ. And we'll look at a few passages, but let me just invite you to look at verse 28, verse uh, 28 through 30, earlier in Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he also, uh, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. This has been often referred to as the golden chain of redemption, uh, no link of which can be broken. Why? Because it would become theologically inconsistent? Well, it would, but that's not why no link in this chain can be broken. Uh, no chain in the link can be broken because it is God who has ultimately put that chain together. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter one very succinctly says very much the same thing as, as he says here in Romans chapter eight. He says, um, uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. In other words, what, when God, as it says here, uh, when he foreknows somebody, it ultimately then results in their justification and then glorification. There is no breaking of that. There is no escaping, running away from, falling out of. What God has started, he will finish. Now, I will say, uh, there are those who are very afraid of the passage I just read because, um, you know, within the Reformed and the Calvinistic camp, there's a very strong push on the sovereignty of God at the expense of any uh, real responsibility on the part of people to respond to the gospel. I'm not Reformed. I don't fall into the Calvinist camp. Uh, but I find tremendous comfort in this passage. Uh, in all of Romans 8, and really all of the book of Romans. But in this passage in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, um, 
in and of themselves are wonderfully powerful, reassuring passages. But connected to why they're true, uh, it becomes this, this warm blanket of, of, of security for the believer. There is no need for a believer to fear that they will fall out of God's grace, that they will somehow depart from, um, uh, or pull themselves out of that which God has started. Uh, and so, so, uh, as a matter of fact, let's look at a few other passages in this regard and then, then we'll, uh, uh continue on with the question. Um, uh, how about, uh, we turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a good one. Of course, we could look at passages like, you know, John 10. Uh, nobody can snatch them out of my hands or my father's hands. Um, and so, um, 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at, uh, starting in verse, uh, 3. Normally I stick a bookmark in here just so I can quickly turn to them for time's sake. Here we go. I didn't do that in that passage, but here we go. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. And listen, to here's the passage. Reserved in heaven for you, that word reserved or kept in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, if you caught that, let me read it again. Uh, an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, kept in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God has prepared something for his children, those who are redeemed, those who are born again uh, to a living hope. There is a reward, an inheritance in heaven that is being kept there for the believer. Not only that, but what Peter is saying is that the believer is also being kept for that inheritance. And who's keeping that believer? Is it the believer? No, they are kept by the power of God. God is the one who is ultimately keeping them. Uh, it is through the vehicle of faith, but that is something that God is holding on to you through. Uh, not his faith, obviously. We believe in that kind of thing, but our belief means we're in Christ, right? Well, he has us. He's not losing us. He's going to get us from where we are to where he, uh, to that place and inheritance that he has prepared for us. Um, just a couple more here in First John. Since we're in First Peter, turn right a couple of books and you'll be in First John. And in chapter, uh, five, doo -doo -doo, chapter five of First John, uh, take a look at verse 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life or has the life. Uh, what life? That eternal life that he's speaking about. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, that you may know that you may have an understanding of this truth, that you have present possession, eternal life. He who has the son, he who is in Christ has eternal life. He who doesn't does not. But you and I have that eternal life. Well, it's not eternal if you can lose it. It's it's only eternal if you can hold on to it. Well, what if you don't hold on to it? And then what happens? It's not eternal anymore. Well, it's never eternal to begin with if you could have it and lose it, uh, just logically speaking. But 
But that life is given to you. God has given that life to us. So one last thought on this in regard to the idea of what about those who seem to depart? Well, we're going to connect this with 1 Timothy chapter 4, but look at uh, 1 John chapter 2 for just a moment. Um, In verse 18, John says this, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Uh, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Okay? So what is John saying here? John is saying, look, there are those, matter of fact, Paul warned about this very thing in, for, in uh, Acts chapter 20 when he called the Ephesian elders together to him in Miletus. And he said, there will come a time after my departure when ravenous wolves will rise up from among you, from among the flock, and they'll not seek, seek they'll, they'll, they'll not spare the flock. I'm warning you in advance, Paul's telling them. Well, John is simply saying this, uh, very much saying the same thing here. He said, there were those who were among us who departed from us. And the reason, and they therefore have made manifest the fact that they were never of us, because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they departed from us means that is, is how we know they were never of us. So John is saying, look, if someone is a believer, then they remain you know, in that condition, in that state, they, it's not to say a, a believer can't backslide and stop going to church for a while. It doesn't mean that a believer can't, um, you know, even wrestle with sin on some level and then, you know, and, and, and all that kind of a thing and still be, be a believer. But John is saying, look, they departed. They were among our number. They at least were, seemed to be professing to be believers so much so that John himself apparently thought these were believers. But he makes the point that we know they weren't. They were never actually of us. And we know that because they departed from us. They're gone. They have left. It doesn't mean that they backslid into unbelief and and they fell out of grace. It means they were never of us in the first place. Now, with that in mind, uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. When you take Romans chapter 8, verses 30 and 39, uh, and then you take 1 Timothy chapter 4, it would seem that Paul has spoken in, in terms that are difficult to reconcile and may even be a contradiction. Uh, I would suggest they're not, actually. And we'll look at the text here to, to demonstrate this in First Timothy chapter 4. This is part of the reason why this is a really good question, because it forces us to look at the text um, a little bit more closely. And, and, and so we're going to do that here, uh, looking at it. So chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, uh, and the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul when Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then in verse three and four, he goes on to, verse three, he goes on to describe some of the, what that looks like. They'll, they'll tell people not to marry. They'll say to abstain from certain foods. Various commentators have seen in this Paul dealing with uh, some of the outworkings of Gnosticism. Others may be dealing with uh, some who are the Judaizers trying to put people back under the law. Uh, some who are just purely aesthetics seeking to elevate certain um, statuses like not being married as being holier than those who uh, are married and that kind of thing. There's a number of possibilities of what, of what Paul may be dealing with here. But I want to focus on verse 1 and 2. 
Again, the Holy Spirit says that in the last times, the latter times, and he says this explicitly, he is clearly making the point that there will be those who in uh, the latter times will depart from the faith. Now, that word the is there in the Greek. It's it's an article that comes before uh, that which it's modifying. The faith, not just depart from faith, but the faith. In other words, there is a body of belief known as the faith, um, that truth once for all delivered to the saints, as, as Jude might say. Uh, it is a body of doctrine that defines what the Christian faith is. It is possible, and I think what Paul has in view here, it seems abundantly clear here, uh, that what Paul is talking about is not someone departing from faith. In other words, they don't go from believing to not believing. What they're doing is going from teaching a certain body of work to no longer teaching that body of work, but teaching a different body of work, uh, a body of, of teaching. And that's why he compares the idea of departing from the faith, but rather instead giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, teachings of demons. They are no longer teaching that body of Christian truth, but they are now teaching these doctrines of demons. They have embraced those and have left behind that body of Christian truth that defines the Christian faith. Well, isn't that the same thing as believing? No, it's not. There are lots and lots of people who are pastoring churches who are not actually born-again believers. (gasps) It's true. It's tragic, but it's true. Matter of fact, uh, I had heard this. I wasn't at the conference, but I'd heard years and years ago at one of, uh, one of the pastor's conferences, uh, there was a, 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 a pastor who stood up and he was a former Methodist. I'm not knocking Methodists per se. I'm just, but this guy happened to be a Methodist pastor. And, um, and there was some kind of discussion, I think, related to this subject. And he stood up uh, at one point during a, uh, an interaction time and, he made mention of the fact that he was a Methodist pastor for something like 12 years, 14 years before he was born again. Now, <clears throat> there are lots and lots of people in Christian churches who are listening to the Bible uh, week after week after week. And there are those in pulpits who are teaching the Bible or teaching something connected to Christian doctrine, whether it be topical or whatever. They're, they're just teaching Christian things, but they're not actually born again. As a matter of fact, I can attest to this personally because I actually went to a solid Bible teaching church, Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove, where I grew up. I was going to that church for a year thinking I was a believer before I actually got saved. I grew up thinking I believed in Jesus. I grew up thinking I believed in God and that I was okay. But I had a workspace salvation. I believed I was good enough. And by good enough, I meant not as bad as some other people. Well, there came a point when I realized that that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't based on behavioral transformation. The the behavioral transformation takes place in the process of sanctification as you are pulled by the Holy Spirit further and further out of the world and further and further into the image of Christ. But that happens after you believe the gospel. The idea of the gospel or the gospel is the idea that we are hopelessly lost, dead in sin, born in iniquity. We're, we're, we're lost from the moment of conception. We are, we are destined to an eternity apart from God, if not for Christ. And by putting our trust in Christ Jesus, we therefore are born again. We are new creations for Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. We're no longer, we're not just fixed from what we were before and sort of tidied up a bit. We are fundamentally different now. We are no longer what we were. We are something new. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's why, you know, Paul can talk about the security of the believer, because it never had anything to do with something that we did. It was something that God did for us, that we received. And so that's the gospel. Well, there are many pulpits that teach and many people in pews that are listening to a very different message that is much more based on the idea of changing your behavior and just sort of leaving it with that. Uh, that somehow that is going to achieve you some righteous status before God. Well, the Bible makes very clear that that's not the gospel at all. Um, but that is what is being taught. And so it is completely conceivable and not just conceivable. It is plainly true that in many places, uh, both among uh, uh, parsons and persons, if you will, uh, that there is unbelief in the hearts of those in those places. Um, and so for an apostasy in the last days, like Paul is talking about in First Timothy chapter 4, it doesn't speak of believers no longer believing. It speaks of those who were at one time teaching Christian doctrine on some level of, of, of to some degree, but departing away from it and now teaching doctrines of demons, which, by the way, you'll notice is is relatively subtle. Uh, the doctrines they're teaching seem to imply that there's a holiness involved like this in this aesthetic sort of approach. Don't get married. Rather, stay single and serve God outside of marriage. Don't eat these certain foods because they defile you and that kind of thing. Uh, it sounds like through our activities, we're sort of cultivating holiness by separation from these things. But Paul says, look, these things are not bad. These things are not to be shunned. They're, they're good. They're, they're, if they're received, you know, as, as being good from the Lord with prayer and such, then receive them. Um, and it's not just because he's trying to make sure people don't, you know, avoid marriage and certain foods, but he's trying to teach them that, look, that's completely other than the doctrines that are true for the faith. These are in fact, in even in their subtle similarity to some pursuit of holiness, they are actually doctrines of demons because they are causing you to put your trust in something that is other than the gospel. In other words, it's a works-based approach to holiness um, when that's not that's not how you are separated to God. You're separated by the gospel and the fact that Christ died for our sins. And then the Holy Spirit helps to work toward changing our behavior. Um, but the faith is held here in verse 1 of, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The faith is held in contrast to the doctrines of demons. That body of Christian truth is held in contrast to that body of demonic doctrine. And so uh, First uh, Timothy chapter 4 is not teaching that believers can depart from the faith. It's teaching that those who were never of us in the first place are going to stop teaching uh, truth and instead start teaching doctrines of demons. Um, so that's one place uh, in the passage as an example of, of the importance of recognizing and digging deep into the passage to see what Paul is saying, um, or, or whoever the author would be of, of any given passage. Um, because it does appear as though there might be a contradiction, but I think plainly there's not. Um, so hopefully that helps. Hopefully that provides um, um, a better understanding of, of, of comparing these two passages by the same author, both speaking of Paul, but also the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself. And so, you know, there there may be an initial concern like, oh, my gosh, how do these two things reconcile? But as you can see, uh, with a, a little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, digger, uh, deeper dive on it, we can see that it really doesn't create anywhere near the kind of contradiction that one might fear. So hopefully that helps. And it's, uh, again, thank you for asking that question. That's a great, great question. And, uh, and it also gave me a chance to talk about the gospel, which I always love talking about. So thanks for that. Well, 
Um, if you have a question or a thought or something you'd like to share, you can always do that by emailing me at info at Calvary Chapel Franklin, or if you want to leave a comment in our comment section on our YouTube channel, you can do that as well. And I do my best to try and read through many of those comments, as many as I can. Uh, this question actually came in some time ago, and I'm just getting to it. I apologize for that, John. I um, uh, but, but su- such is the nature of, of pastoral ministry. Sometimes I just can't quite get to things as quickly as I'd like. So, but, uh, glad we could take a minute today. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And until the next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace forever. Father, thank you for your grace, your goodness. Thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that, um, that you have answers to the hard questions that, uh, Father, you've spoken truth to us with the intent that we would come to understand that truth and stand upon it and be changed by it, both in terms of our position and our relationship with you, having come now uh, by faith and received Christ and his finished work for our salvation, and also in our daily growth, that as we spend time in the word day after day, um, just reading and praying and soaking in the, the truths that the, the word of God gives us, that we would grow thereby, that we would grow further and further into maturity and useful. Uh, for your kingdom's sake, and, and most of all, that we would grow in our loving relationship with you. We thank you that you've not called us uh, to some legalistic, works-based relationship, but rather instead you've called us into a loving relationship as children to a father. And we thank you and praise you that, uh, Father, you've really taken the responsibility for saving ourselves completely uh, out of our hands. It's never been in our hands, but thank you for helping us to realize that this is all your grace, your goodness, your love on display, your desire to seek and save that which is lost. So we praise you and bless you for that. And thank you for the security that we have in Christ. And Father, we pray that we would never let our faith uh, sort of devolve into something that's works-based and fear-based. But even as John said in his first letter, you know, it's, it's perfect love casts out that fear of judgment. So thank you for this, Lord. We love you and praise you for this and, and all of the things that we discussed today and pray that you would continue to draw us closer and closer and deeper and deeper into this relationship with you by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory and all because of Christ's work that he finished for us. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Amen.